where a house fire has started to destroy your entire home. And just when you think that, that, that you are a goner, the window to your bedroom smashes open and a fireman pulls you out just in time right before you're engulfed by the flames. There are wrong and strange responses to this. So for example, let's say that once you're on the ground, you're, you're being checked out by the paramedics and you think about what just happened to you and you said, big deal, I probably could have gotten out by myself. Or, or, or maybe you actually attribute what that firefighter did to other firefighters who weren't even there. Or, or maybe you, you say, you know what, I think I could have probably gotten myself out there myself. These are strange, right? Like, nobody would respond like that. If, if somebody did respond like that, you would think that something was off with them. What would be some proper responses to something like that happening to you? Gratitude. A gratitude that, that overflows with, I want to do something back for this firefighter. Uh, what about praise? Anytime that that firefighter's around, hey, that's, that's the guy who saved my life. You, you need to meet this guy. A desire to have a, a lasting, lifelong relationship, thank you, brother, with this firefighter. These are proper responses. These are the ones that make sense. And so the question is, is how you look at God and how you respond to God a logical conclusion for what God has done for you. When you reflect on the the idea that God saved you and saves you, do you meet that with apathy or praise? When you consider the fact that God forgave and still forgives you, do you respond to that with more sin or do you respond by trying to obey him? When you consider the fact that God disciplines you, do you bring into that a certain nonchalance or are you filled with a correct fear of your father? God's works demands that we respond appropriately. And we're going to take a look at this passage and see how it encourages us to respond to the way that God graciously works on our behalf. And we're going to see that in three different ways, starting with this first one. Number one, God saves us, so we should praise him. God saves us, so we should praise him. We're going to be in verses 14 through 21, and this is the point where we're going to be spending most of the time. That's where most of the verses are. And so let's read once again verses 14 through 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness 
and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. So let's go back to verse 14. Thus says the Lord. We saw this in last week's passage, right? Another reminder that this isn't only the inspired words that are given to Isaiah, but it is God's direct message itself to the people of Israel. No more inspired, and yet it's highlighted kind of like when Paul says, see what I'm writing with my own hand, right? This is what God is saying himself to his people, Israel and Judah. And he calls himself their redeemer. Remember from last week, that means that God purchased them. He purchased their freedom from slavery, in this case, to Babylon. He is their redeemer. And he is the Holy One of Israel, the one who set himself apart for that particular nation in the context of other nations. Then he says to them, for your sake, I send to Babylon. In this case, we know whom he sends. We look ahead at Isaiah 44, and it says that God sends Cyrus, who is the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, King Cyrus. God would send Cyrus to Babylon, essentially to conquer Babylon, to destroy it. Just by way of of review, the southern kingdom of Judah was under uh, captivity in the Babylonian Empire, and they had been that way for 70 years for God's discipline on them, and now God was going to bring them out. For, For their sake, for their benefit, he sends to Babylon. And he brings them all down. He brings the Babylonians all down as fugitives. In other words, the Babylonians flee before him. Even the Chaldeans, verse 14 says. Chaldea was a tribe in Babylon and they were, they were essential to establishing the Babylonian empire. And so a lot of times in the scriptures and elsewhere, Babylon and Chaldea are used synonymously, okay? So just, it's parallel, kind of like Jacob and Israel, Babylon and Chaldea. But in particular, in this region of Chaldea, which was um, really reliant on shipping, they were famous for shipping, they had a lot of great pride in their ships. And it says, even the Chaldeans while I bring down as fugitives, in the ships in which they rejoice, in the, things, in the very things that give them great pride, their mighty ships, they are fleeing from God. God, again, is declaring that he's going to defeat Babylon on behalf of the nation of Judah, on behalf of his people, Israel. Now, reading it this way can cause some people concern because the way that God conquers Babylon doesn't seem to be as violent as seems to be pictured here. Instead of fleeing, what they did was they actually embraced King Cyrus as the coming conqueror, which paints another picture of Jesus coming as the Prince of Peace, getting ahead of myself a little bit, okay? But the point here is not so much the manner in which God was going to destroy Babylon and conquer them, but rather the totality of it. He was going to utterly bring them down to their knees and bring his people out of there so that they can go back to their promised land. 
And then he reminds him in verse 15, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Once again, appealing to his name that he had given to them. He was their God. He was their Holy One. He is the creator of Israel. He was their king, all in verse 15. Now, a lot of these we already saw last week. Uh, And so this section of Isaiah does tend to be a little bit repetitive, but God's not going to apologize for that, and neither am I. If God repeats themes, do you think that you need them repeated? Do you think that you need this constant reminder of who he is? He says, I am Yahweh. I am your Holy One, the creator of Israel. They were not a people, and God formed them. He made them into the nation of Israel and set them apart for himself. And he was their king. If you think back to Israel's history, they didn't want him as king. They wanted human kings like everybody else around them. So they rejected Yahweh as king and asked for a human king. Nevertheless, God remained their king. You don't make God king. He is king. All right? He is their king. Verse 16. He continues, Thus says the Lord, those words again, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. When you're reading this, what, what does this draw your mind back to? The Exodus, right? God leading his people out of captivity in Egypt. Now, um, sometimes, because we can't always be starting from the beginning, preachers will simply say something like the Exodus and assume that you know what he's talking about. But it's possible that there's somebody here who has just started coming to church, just started looking at the Bible, and doesn't know what that's talking about. So let's spend some time today In Exodus 14, just keep your finger in Isaiah 43. In Exodus 14, and all I'm going to do is I'm simply going to read the account of what this is referring to in verses 5 through the rest of the chapter of Exodus 14. Now the context is God has told uh, the people through Moses, he's going to get them out of there. And he has, through Moses and Aaron, commanded Pharaoh of Egypt, let my people go. And and Pharaoh continues to harden himself as God judicially hardens him as well. And after plague after plague, he still says, I'm not going to let your people go until the very last plague, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And then finally he relents. He lets them go and they start to leave. And that's where we pick up in chapter 14 of Exodus, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army 
and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen.
By the way, when you're reading your, to your children the Bible, try to read like that. I don't mean like good like me. I just mean with some excitement. This is an exciting story, praise God. Not just a story. It's an account of God's salvation of them. So then here in Isaiah 43, he reminds his people, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do you think that that would have been or should have been encouraging to the people of Judah to remember what God had done for Israel in the past? That's God's intention of bringing this up. And by the way, quenching like a wick, verse 17, how easy it is for a full-grown person to simply quench fire. It's nothing to them. It was nothing for God to deliver people, God's people in that way that he did in Exodus. And the encouragement to them and to us is, can't he do it again? Of course he can. And in fact, in verse 18, he essentially says, don't even worry about that. He says in verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old, not to say they were not helpful, but he wanted them to draw their attention to what he was about to do. Verse 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing what I did before, I'm about to do again for you. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Remember, this was written 80 years before they were taken into exile, 150 years before they were actually taken out of exile. And so it's quite possible, if not probable, that they had some access to the scroll of Isaiah, even in Babylonian captivity. But even if not, they would have had time to hear Isaiah's prophecy and to consider these things in their present situation. God asks, do you not perceive what I'm about to do? Do you not perceive that I'm about to deliver you? Middle of verse 19. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This time, God wasn't going to get them delivered through a sea. He was going to get them delivered through the wilderness between Babylon and Jerusalem would have been a 900-mile journey and an arduous terrain, a difficult terrain. And God is saying, I'm going to make way in that wilderness. In other places in Isaiah, I think Isaiah 40, it talks about how he's going to make the ground level for them. And here he said he was going to give um, rivers in the desert. Now, there is no historical account either in the Bible or in anything anywhere else that talks about God literally making rivers in the desert. But the, the point that's being made here is not so much the literal rivers in the desert, but God was gonna provide for them. He was gonna provide for their every need on this 900 mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. He would make the way easy for them. This is how God was going to deliver them. And this is not, they should have also remembered, this is nothing for God to be able to um, provide for a massive amount of people in the wilderness. They should be able to look back at their own history and remember that when their forefathers sinned against God, they were rejected from going into the promised land 
And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness and God gave them all the food they needed, all the water they needed, and the soles of their sandals didn't even get worn out. God is able to provide for them in this journey back, in this deliverance. Continuing this metaphor in verse 20, he says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Jackals and ostriches were, would have been known for um, being in the wilderness, being in the desert. And the idea is when God springs forth these rivers in the wilderness, those animals are going to honor him because they too will be provided for. But they are simply um, secondary beneficiaries, if you will, to God's act. End of verse 20. His purpose in doing this was to give drink specifically to his chosen people. God was acting specifically on their behalf. These chosen people, verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself. God made them for himself. And here's the end to all of this. The end to his forming them for himself, the end to delivering them out of Babylon, end of verse 21, that they might declare my praise. Isn't that the proper response to being delivered? Praising the one who delivered you? It doesn't, it's, it's not rocket surgery, all right? Praise is the proper response to being delivered. If you, in fact, well, we don't need to turn back there, but if you look at Exodus 15, that's the next chapter. It's a song of praise for God's deliverance. So, tying this to us in Jesus Christ. This Yahweh who saved them is the same Yahweh who saves us. This same God who redeems them is the same one who redeems us. More specifically, he sends us a redeemer. The Holy One of God, he sends us Jesus Christ himself. And he doesn't just send him to the nation of Babylon to deliver a people out of physical captivity. He sends his son, the Redeemer, to this Babylon that is the earth to deliver us from our spiritual enemies. And he's going to make his enemies flee and in fact has already begun to do so. He's going to take the proud and the arrogant and bring them down and he's going to exalt the humble. He is Yahweh, your Holy One. He is the creator of this spiritual Israel, the sons of Abraham, the church. And he has sent you your king. And we can look back at, at the deliverance from Exodus, from, sorry, from Egypt, and this deliverance from Babylon. And should that not encourage us and remind us that he will save us also in the end? Cannot we look back at how he has saved us so far and continues to deliver us and be strengthened in this reality that he will finally save us again? Our enemies will be extinguished, quenched like a wick. He is doing a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? It's in his word. He's going to make a way for us in our wilderness, in our journey from exile, 
He's going to give us rivers in the desert, providing everything that we need to make it to the very end. And regarding these jackals and ostriches, giving honor to him, while it may be being used metaphorically in this context, it will have a more delightful and glorious fulfillment in the end. Romans 8 talks about how creation is groaning. Creation is messed up because of the fall, right? People look at, their unbelievers look at animals and say, well, those animals engage in homosexual things, so that's just natural, right? And my response is, you know, some spiders eat their mates as well. <laughs> so we shouldn't be looking to nature to be our example. Creation is broken as well. And God is gonna make that all right. He's going to restore everything that was broken in creation so that the jackals and the ostriches will honor him. But all of that is a secondary beneficiaries to how he has acted on our behalf. He has given drink to his chosen people, not just rivers in the desert, but the living waters of Jesus Christ. Come to him and drink. We are the people whom he has formed for himself. Just like Israel didn't deserve being formed, we didn't deserve being formed into a people either. And as First Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. The purpose of all of that God's working in us is that we might declare his praise. Take an audit of your life right now. Do you give him the praise that he is due? Do you consistently respond by praising him for what he has done for you? Can it be said of you, this is my story, this is my song, praising my savior all the day long. You know what you can't do while you're praising God is speak ill of others. James 3 talks about how from the same mouth comes blessings to God and curses to his image bearers. And he says, brothers, this should not be so. Anytime that you are using your mouth to sin against somebody else, you are certainly not praising God. The Lord has given you a mouth and a tongue for the purpose of praising him for the salvation that he has wrought on you. So every day, your mouth should be filled with his praises and your life should reflect your praise of God. And when we gather together, this is what we're doing. When, when we say, thanks be to God in response to his word, we're praising him. When we sing these songs, we are praising him. And by the way, clapping is a perfectly biblical expression of praise, right? Because we're reformed, the question in our minds is, should we clap? Should we clap after a song? I don't know. That doesn't seem very reformed. That seems very charismatic to me, right? It's in the Bible. Psalm 47 verse 1 ties clapping for all the nations to making a joyful shout to God, okay? So I'm not saying you must clap, but if you will clap, you better do it with gusto. Don't clap for us, clap for him. He is worthy of that. And he is, by the way, worthy of more than scattered applause. 
Okay? So praise him. Praise him together. What does your praise look like when you're here? Are you singing these songs out of mere ritual? Are you saying thanks be to God after it's said to you that this is the word of the Lord just out of repetition and habit? Or do you bring to God full praise that he deserves? This is what he deserves. God saves us, so we should praise him. Number two, God forgives us, so we should obey him. And these next two are going to be a bit shorter than this first one. But let's read verses 22 through 25. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you've burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So the proper response, verse 21, is that they would declare his praise. And in verse 22, he says, but you didn't call upon me. You didn't invoke my name in your worship. You didn't call upon me, O Jacob, but you've been weary of me, O Israel. Remember, Jacob and Israel are the same people. They were weary of God. They were tired of him. Isn't that a terrible thing? To think of a people tired of God? And he says in verse 23, you have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. Now, this is a tricky verse because if it's talking about while they're in captivity, well, the temple has been destroyed. So they can't, they can't give him sacrifices. And it's unlikely that God would hold it against them that they weren't doing sacrifices when they couldn't have. If it's talking about before the exile, that wouldn't really mesh well with what's said in uh, chapter one, verse 11, where he says to them, I don't care for your multitude of sacrifices. I'm tired of them. I'm tired of all these sacrifices. So what's likely being said here is not so much that they're not doing the offerings, it's that their heart of worship that is meant to be behind those sacrifices isn't there. And so in that sense, yeah, maybe they were bringing sheep for burnt offerings, but it wasn't for Yahweh. It was for themselves. It was for self-preservation or whatever other reasons. But God is saying, I haven't received any. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings. You haven't honored me with your sacrifices. And on the other hand, he said in verse 23, I have not burdened you with offerings. The expectations that God gave in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament were not burdensome. It wasn't too much for them. He knew what they could handle and he told them what to do. In fact, for those who were poor, sometimes they could give different animals than the ones who were well off. God didn't burden them with offerings. He didn't weary them with frankincense. By the way, God didn't need any of that. You think God needed those animals? You think God needed fragrant offerings? God needs nothing. The sacrifices that he allowed them to do were for their benefit, not his. 
It allowed for them to continue to be in fellowship with him and to remain in the land that he had given them, but he hadn't burdened them with it. He hadn't wearied them with it. And on the other hand, verse 24, he tells them, you have not bought me sweet sweet cane with money. This is probably talking about a a fragrant, um, can't think of the word, a fragrant scent, uh, sweet cane, a fragrant spice, there we go. That would probably calamus, in some translations translated as calamus. And it would have been expensive. It would have been, because it wasn't native to their land. They would have had to import it. And he's saying, you've not even done that. After all I have done for you, Jacob, Israel, you haven't gone out of your way to buy sweet cane with money. If anything, they were probably bringing the minimum they could possibly give to worship their God, allegedly. Neither had they, verse 24, satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. Kind of thinking in the same line here, the fattiest meats are the choicest meats, the most valuable meats. They weren't giving those to God either. Again, reflecting not so much what they should have been doing physically, but what their hearts should have been doing. Should not they have been responding to God with their best, with their free will offerings of expensive, fragrant spices that they have to spend extra money on? and take the best part of their sacrifices and offer it to God, they should have. But instead of giving them and heaping on him, rather, sacrifice upon sacrifice, offering upon offering what they had done instead, verse 24, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. This is why their sacrifices were not pleasing to God. They weren't repenting of their sins. He would have rather they repented and not just give him a bunch of obligatory sacrifices. They burdened him with their sins. They wearied him with their iniquities. This, by the way, is what we call anthropopathic language. Anthropo meaning man, pathic meaning emotions. It is emotions of man that are being attributed to God just to help us to understand something. It's important to make that note because God doesn't grow weary. But to help us understand what is going on here, he uses these words, you have wearied me with your iniquities. Then in verse 25, he says that in spite of that, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. So they didn't deserve this at all. There is no evidence of any kind of revival or repentance in between verses 24 and 25. It is simply God's sovereign grace that he tells them that I'm the one who blots out your transgressions. So imagine that there is a ledger in heaven with all of the sins of Judah and Israel and God takes a heaping lump of ink and blots it all out from the ledger, effectively erasing it. He was doing that for them. He was blotting out their transgressions. And he says here it was for his own sake. It was for God's own sake. They didn't deserve it. They weren't just like doing their best and God just needed to do the rest. They were completely turned against him. And yet still, God blotted out their transgressions for the sake of his glory. Why does God do what he does? It's because of who he is. 
He is gracious, so he shows grace. He is merciful, so he shows mercy. He is forgiving, so he forgives. To the extent that he tells them, again, with anthropopathic language, I will not remember your sins. It's not that God literally doesn't remember. God cannot contradict himself. He knows everything. He knows everything that they did, but he forgets it in the sense that he wasn't going to ever bring it up again. He wasn't ever going to hold it against them again. This is the grace that God showed Israel and Judah. And as always, it's pointing forward to what God has done for us in Christ. We look at Israel and Judah, we say, how silly. They grew weary of God. How could somebody do that? Have you ever found yourself not praising God when you should have been? Have you ever found yourself going weary of God? Let's put some practicality to this, right? It's February 11th, and on January 1st, probably everybody started a reading plan. Have you ever fallen off a reading plan? Even though you acknowledge this is God's word. If I want to get to know him and hear from him, it's right here. You've grown weary of God. Have you ever found yourself getting bored in the assembly of the saints on the Lord's day? You have grown weary of God. You're not here simply to be served. You're here to serve him, to bring him your spiritual sacrifices and praise to him. So we are not better than Israel or Judah. We, we fail to call upon him. We grow sometimes weary of him. Have you ever found yourself with this kind of half-hearted type of worship, whether it's in your own quiet time at home or with the people of God, in the same way that they were not bringing him the sheep for burnt offerings? Have you ever found yourself giving half-hearted worship from a cold heart? Have you ever found yourself giving the Lord the scraps rather than giving him your first fruits? Have you ever found yourself just squeezing whatever you can in your budget to give him whatever is left over? Or, or giving him whatever little time you have left for his things? Yeah, I can squeeze in maybe an hour of church a week. Squeezing in the things of God rather than building your life around the things of God. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Have you ever, even after you were saved by believing in Jesus Christ, sinned against God? We're going to have various answers to those previous questions, but for this question right here, the answer is yes. Even after we have been saved by him, we continue to sin against him. We struggle with his flesh. But God is not burdened with our sins. God is not weary of our iniquities the way that he was burdened and wearied by their sin. Why? Because of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Verse 4 through 6. 
talking about the servant of the Lord. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason why God is no longer, is not burdened with our sins, wearied by our iniquities, is because he took that burden and placed it on his son instead. And on the cross of Christ, Christ took our sins on himself and bore the full weight of God's wrath on himself so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sees us as if we'd never sinned, if you believe in Jesus. He sees you as righteous, and it is because of that that in an even greater way, verse 25 is true about you. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. He has separated you, believer in Jesus Christ, as far as the east is from the west from your sin. He remembers your sin no more. Now the point that we were making in verse, uh, point number two, is that God forgives us so we should obey him. It doesn't explicitly say that we should obey him in these verses, right? But it is strongly implied in Jacob and Israel's inappropriate response to salvation that they should obey. They should stop with a half-hearted and in disingenuous worship toward him. They should stop putting sin upon sin against God. And that's true for us also. We should reflect on the fact that God has forgiven us and we should give him true and genuine worship in the form, yes, of praise, but also in your life. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the right response. God forgives us, so we should obey him. Number three, God disciplines us, so we should fear him. God disciplines us, so we should fear him. Verses 26 to 28. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So in verse 26, when God says, put me in remembrance, other translations say, remind me, okay? Let's, let's run it back. Why don't, why don't you walk me through your past Let's argue together. Set forth your case so that you may be proved right. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm overreacting here. Okay? Why don't you tell me how you actually are righteous and have been worshiping me correctly? Prove yourself right. And of course, this is godly rhetorical sarcasm. They can't make that case. They know that they had sinned against God. 
He furthermore says, your first father sinned. Um, One commentary I read said that maybe talking about Adam, but most of them said this is probably talking about Jacob, right there. The forefather of theirs that was renamed Israel, after which the rest of them were named, okay? He says, your first father sinned. Whether it's talking about Adam, Abraham, Jacob, they all sinned against God. Adam ate the tree, for the truth, the tree he shouldn't have. Abraham lied. Jacob was deceitful. Your first father sinned. And your mediators transgressed against me. This is talking about the prophets and the priests of the nation. Those people who were supposed to be mediating between God and man, even they sinned against him. Building on this collective and corporate responsibility for this sin. In verse 28, he says this, Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. In other words, the princes of the sanctuary are talking about the priests. They are supposed to be the leaders within the sanctuary, and God was going to profane them. He was going to make them just common. They weren't going to be holy ones set apart for him anymore. They were just going to be common folks because they had failed in their priesthood. And this was, of course, fulfilled when the temple was destroyed. And not just that, but he would deliver Jacob to utter destruction. This again was fulfilled in the fact that Israel, the northern kingdom, was utterly obliterated by the Assyrians and scattered among the rest of the peoples. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken into Babylonian exile and captivity for 70 years, thus utterly destroying them for that period. He delivered Jacob to Babylon and to Assyria to utter destruction. He delivered Israel to reviling. He put them in a shameful state, no longer their own nation, but slaves under Babylon. This is what God did for them. It was for discipline to them. It was an act of grace toward them. It was an act of preservation for them. What about you? Is there anyone here who thinks, I'm a generally good person. Room this big, there has to be at least one person who thinks that he's a generally good person. God would say to you, put me in remembrance. Remind me, let's walk through your life real quick. You think you're a good person? Let me walk you through the good person test, okay? Have you ever loved anything or anyone, even for a moment, more than you've loved God? Have you ever used his name in vain? Have you ever decided that you just wanted to skip church because it just felt like it? You just felt like it. Have you ever dishonored your parents? Let's call them up. Have you, have you ever hated somebody, which Jesus says is tantamount to murder? Have you ever lusted over someone, which Jesus says is tantamount to adultery? Have you ever stolen anything, even if it was just something that was minor? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever wanted something that somebody else had and you were envious about that? If the answer to these questions is yes, you have broken every single one of God's commandments. And so God does not look at you as a generally good person. You cannot stand before 
the Lord your God who is holy, who demands perfection, and say that I am a righteous person. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Our first father sinned. In addition to uh, our forefathers spiritually in Israel, Adam, our first father sinned, plunging this world into sinfulness. And every single one of us was born with a sinful nature. And the earliest moment that we could sin, we did. And that's what we've done the rest of our lives. But God will not utterly destroy us if you believe in Jesus Christ. The reason that he will not utterly destroy you is because he brought the punishment that was due to you and put it on his son instead. And you, if you are a believer in him, are covered with his blood and his righteousness. Thanks be to God. That being said, God also still loves you and because of that, will still discipline you. Hebrews, keep your hand in Isaiah 43. But let's quickly look at Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, we'll read in verses 4 through 11, and I'll just make some quick observations. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So just some quick observations in application to us. If you are one of Christ's, you have been made a child of God. If you believe in Jesus, you are a son or daughter of God. And because you are a child of God, God lovingly disciplines you. And if he doesn't discipline you, then that's not a good sign. It means that you're not a child of God. Okay? And it points, then the author points back to parents, right? If you are a child now living under your parents' roof, you, to some degree, you fear your parents' discipline. I have seen this happen, right? I know that the parent is taking a child away. I know what's about to happen. Buck, buck. That child is not happy about that situation. Discipline hasn't even started yet. They're bawling their eyes out. Or, or even if, and I don't recommend this, if you're doing this, I think you should stop. The, the parents who do the counting method, one, two, right? Don't let me get to three. Usually the kids obey by three. Again, I don't recommend this system. But the point is, those kids fear their parents' discipline enough that it almost never gets to three. You understand this? In the same way, should we not fear 
rightly the discipline of God? Should we not embrace the concept that we see in Hebrews 10, that it is a fearful thing to be in the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, 31. God is not one to be trifled with, okay? He loves you deeply. He loves you so much, he gave his only son for you so that through faith in him, you'll be forgiven all of your sins. And he also loves you so much that he is willing to make your life miserable so that you don't experience the eternal miseries of hell. In the end, we'll see that God was the one who preserved us to the very end. But he does use means like suffering to keep you to himself. What has he done in the Bible to this regard? Um, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied. They died. There were people in Corinth. They were not taking the Lord's Supper worthily. Some of them fell sick because of that. Some of them even died. Miriam after speaking out of turn when Moses got leprosy, okay? Perhaps the suffering that you're going through in your life is God's discipline of you for your sin. Don't ignore that. And also, don't despise it. Just as kids grow up and look to their parents' discipline and say, man, I'm glad that my parents disciplined me. You should be glad that God disciplines you. But don't take that for granted. What do you think God prefers? To discipline you or that you would just obey? He'd rather that you obey. In love, he will discipline you, but he would rather that you obey. We should see the discipline of God and recognize that the same God who utterly destroyed Israel, the same God who cast Judah into a 70-year exile is the same God who disciplines you. So fear him. Give him the right reverence and awe and fear that he deserves. Let's summarize. God saves us, so we should praise him. If you believed in Jesus Christ, and we invite everyone here to believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, all of your sins are forgiven, and you are continually being saved today, and you will one day be finally saved to dwell with a physical body, a glorious body, with him forever and ever. And so therefore, your response should be praise. Praise him with your life. Praise him with your lips. Praise him with a church family and do it with some gusto. Do it with some moxie, okay? God forgives us so we should obey him. Considering all the things that we've been forgiven of, what shall we say then? Should we sin more that grace may abound? May it never be. How could we who have died to sin still walk in it? Put your sin to death in light of the fact that God has forgiven you your sins. And God disciplines us so we should fear him. We are not a people who takes God's patience for granted. We know that he has the power to make us miserable temporarily in order to keep us eternally. Give him the fear that he deserves and keep his commandments. God's works demand that we respond appropriately. Let us respond to all his gracious work. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this word. We pray, Lord, that it would convict us as appropriate, 
that it would encourage us as appropriate, and that ultimately, O oh God, our praise would simply be elevated for you. You are worthy of our singing and much, much more. Lord, be glorified in us. Help us to obey you. Help us to hate our sin so much that we walk in more faithfulness. And help us, O oh Lord, to receive your discipline and to fear you as we ought. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.